0: Amen. Good evening, everyone. Um, In southern France, overlooking the Mediterranean, stands the Tower of Constance. Um, There, in the 18th century, Huguenot, that is, Protestant women, were imprisoned for decades because they refused to surrender their Protestant reformed faith. In the the tower room, where they were held captive, a a stone coping surrounds uh, an opening in the floor and inscribed in the stone is the word resiste. Marie Duran entered that room in 1729 when she was 15 years old. Three years later, her brother was hanged at Montpellier. In 1745, which is 16 years later, she was offered her freedom if she would agree to renounce Protestant worship. She refused all such offers and remained captive for 38 years, resisting the temptation to despair, to suicide, to betrayal. From her imprisonment, she began a ministry of encouragement by correspondence. Some of her letters are kept today in the Museum of the Wilderness in the mountains of the Savannah. And our theme as we wrap up 1 Peter is those two words, stand firm. And if that isn't an, example, isn't an example of standing firm, then I really don't know what is. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find it on page 1220. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're reading from verse 8 to the end of the letter. 1 Peter chapter uh, 5, verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I think it's really good of Peter that right at the end, just a few verses from the end of this letter, he finally gives us the clue to deciphering what this letter is all about. Maybe, uh, you know, as people were reading it, uh, they got the general gist of it. But if you've got any doubt at all, he's going to give us that key. Now, the idea of deciphering means that we can convert uh, a code into a normal language. Well, I don't think we need to do that quite here because the language is, is, is relatively normal, isn't it? But it, it is this idea that we can succeed in understanding or interpreting or identifying something in this the Word of God. And by the way, this is pretty consistent. That You can always use the Bible to interpret the Bible, but it's just really helpful when an author actually puts into their letter or to a passage how we should be reading this. You'll find it, for example, in John's Gospel, but John himself waits until the last chapter to say why he's writing it. But here we've got it in Peter's Letter here. This idea that there is some way we can get the code to do it. And to my mind, grace, that is God's favor, as we see the words written in the NIV, is key. What am I talking about? I think the encryption key is in verse 12, where he says this With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Now, I don't know what you regard as brief. I get emails that are about half sentence long from some people. I think that as brief. Uh, other people write some longer tomes than that, and you and I have probably read books that are hundreds of pages long. So five chapters, well, that's Peter's definition of brief. But I'm less worried about that than I am to look at this, that right through this letter, he's essentially saying that what I've been talking about is the true grace of God. That is God's favor, God's enabling for we who are believers in him to to live for him. And the idea here, and by the way, the NIV talks about the, the... Um, favour of God in 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 an earlier verse it's the same Greek word it's the word charis or a variation on the word charis which which is used the favour of God the grace of God is is talking about the same thing But, but along the way I noticed that description of Silas who I regard he says as a faithful brother now that's a bit of a challenge to me and I hope it's a challenge to you as well Can other believers describe us as a faithful brother or a faithful sister in the Lord? Are we people who stick with the gospel and stick at serving God in the way he's called us to serve him? Now, given that Peter's got such a clear purpose in writing, right, that we might understand this grace of God and stand fast in it, and that's been woven right the way through this letter, And as we've come to the end of the letter, it seems appropriate that we ought to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we personally are taking away from this letter of 1 Peter? So as we leave the letter, the letter doesn't leave us. Which bit of the true grace of God and standing firm in it has stuck in your mind from this series? Now we're gonna when we finish when I finish we're gonna have a feedback session. Give you, so I'm giving you a heads up here. I'm giving you a chance to think, and we'll have a roving mic. Give you a chance to discuss it among yourselves, and then uh, we, we'll pounce on you. I know we'll 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 offer you the microphone uh, if if you so wish. So this letter of Peter is, is one of the general epistles, and uh, to be quite honest, it's about as general as you can get in in terms of its location. I think uh, because. Uh, is written to believers in, in northern Turkey. In fact, if you look at uh, 1 verse 1, which is, which is there on the screen, one of the things uh, you'll see, the list is, is Pontus, that's up there, and then Galatia, and Cappadocia, and, and then all the way across to the west to Asia, and then Bithynia. So that is what he's writing to. Now, Turkey is about 3.2 times the size of the United Kingdom. And I reckon that's more than half of Turkey. So that's two churches in an area twice the size of the UK. So, so I think it's a pretty general spread, isn't it, when you're writing to that sort of geographical size. It is that sort of epistle. So he's writing to people, many of whom, possibly most of whom, he will never have met and won't meet this side of heaven. And he's talking to them about this true grace of God. And then he comes to these verses uh, of warning, and I, we, my wife Cindy went down our garden this morning before church, I, I, I think she, she's just been away for a week, and I think she just went down to inspect it, to make sure that uh, I'd water the plants appropriately, and the vegetables and so on, thankfully I was away when it was really hot, and then it rained the other day as I was home, so, so I looked good, um, but, but at the end of the garden there was a, quite a significant amount of grey, black, white fur, at the end of the garden. It wasn't there yesterday, uh, and we think that somewhere during the night, the various owners of our garden—that's the cats of the neighbourhood—obviously had a, a, you know, coming together uh, and a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a party or an aggression, a bit of aggression broke out. But, I, but I wonder what, um, what your thinking is about the animal kingdom. Well. <laughs> That, that was Bone Digger, the lion, who's at a, a, a rescue center or zoo in Oklahoma. It, he almost looks pettable, doesn't he? And I wonder when our adversary, the devil, is described as like a roaring lion, whether sometimes as Christians we tone things down and make him, th- and think of him a bit like that, that he's tameable. Because the... Devil takes great pleasure in reducing our understanding of him. So if you imagine, if we talk about the devil, probably one of the things that comes to mind is a guy in a red suit with a tail, a pitchfork, and horns. Is that right? That's so often what we get. And it's a sort of comic-like figure. But as long as we give the devil those sort of attributes, then then in our own minds we're lessening the... um, awfulness of what he is, and we are undermining in our own minds the need we have to stand firm. So Peter opens this passage by saying, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You don't think... A bone digger here of being someone who's about to, to devour you. Interestingly enough, the zookeeper who I edited out of that clip has metal legs. <laughs> but that was from a separate accident, it wasn't from, from his encounter with his lion. Right? But here we're, we're told that Satan wants to devour us, he would like us to become casualties in spiritual warfare. He would like to negate our walk with Christ. And he's on the prowl even now. And so Peter's command is that we resist him standing firm in the faith. And one of the encouragements to that is that the family of believers, that is Christians around the world, are undergoing similar sufferings to the type you people in northern Turkey are going through. Now, here in Chichester, we, we are remarkably, not scot-free, but we have so little in terms of persecution. But let's take Iran, for example, right now, where we know that there are hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Christians, people are turning to Christ at an enormous rate, but so too the church leaders are being imprisoned uh, and are locked away for long periods of time. Or you could go to China, where in recent years, just in the last few years, the church is undergoing significant persecution. And you, you can catch up with interviews with pastors who say, I know I will be in prison soon. I will be rejoicing that I have the chance to be, um, suffer with my Lord. And so this encouragement that other Christians were also suffering was in fact something to to challenge the believers to resist Satan and stand firm in their faith even during suffering. I think one of the things he's saying is that no one has immunity from temptation. I saw on Facebook this week that Grada Munns celebrated her 18th birthday. Did you know that? It was 18 years ago she had a bone marrow transplant, which obviously gave her new life. But I suspect that along with that, anybody who goes through that loses their immunity because they have to have, first of all, everything that gives them immunity killed off. A a good friend, some friends of ours um, came to see uh, me and, and, uh, the other day, and me and Tom the other day, um, down in, in Devon. And they live in Brixham, and uh, Helen had spent the, has spent the last year uh, with um, bowel cancer, and she's had a significant... Pretty much anything that could be removed has been removed. You know, it, It's been quite a major process for her, including her spleen and, and other things. And so immunity has gone completely. She has to be very careful and, and of course, has to hopefully build up a level of coping with all the things that over the last 60-something years she's built up. But for us as Christians, can I say that there is no immunity from temptation? You can't be immune from a roaring lion who's seeking to devour you and the moment that you and i think we've made it you know we're spiritual enough not to trip up on this one let a, let me tell you that first of all we're going to fall for pride but then there'll be another attack in a place that we didn't expect it but what we can have if we can't have immunity is that we can by the grace of god have resistance and that resistance is activated you sort of turn it on when you are sober minded and dependent upon God's grace. Now, I, I, I do encourage you to look around at the Christians and, that you know, and, and I think when you see people around here, you know that being sober-minded doesn't mean you can't have a sense of humor. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy life and laugh. But it does mean that underlying everything that we do, we are aware that we are living life in a spiritual dimension, in a spiritual battle, Uh, and that there is a gospel to get out there and there is a resistance to that gospel out there and uh, taking effect in our own lives. And so therefore, we need to be dependent on God's grace, which uh, we will have read about last week in verse 5, which flows from the humility that we should be having. So, So Christian wisdom, well, that's going to... Recognize the seductions that Satan is going to use to deceive the church. Christian wisdom will recognize the imitations of Christianity that are out there in the sects and the cults and, and in other ways that Satan would want people to substitute for real genuine faith in Jesus. And Peter has already mentioned soberness twice in this letter. So if something's appearing three times in one letter, let's just take a a moment. Have a look at chapter 1 and verse 13. And you'll see there that Peter links our sobriety to hope. He says this, Therefore, with minds that, that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. He's saying there is a time coming when Jesus will return and we as believers need to have our hearts set on that because if our hearts are set on that, then they'll be less attached to the world in which we live. They'll help, it'll help us in our encouragement of us in, in, in the lives we live in, in terms of the struggles and the suffering and so on. And then if you jump to, page, to chapter 4, verse 7, he, he says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So sobriety is linked to hope. It's linked to prayer. And it's linked to resisting temptation in this verse. This is what a lion is really like. Did you catch that? I think that, is that an impala, that, that animal? I think it was quite alert, wasn't it? I can't judge on its sober-mindedness, but it was certainly paying attention to the dangers that, was, that were around it. And it got away from that attack of the lion, which seemed to disappear rapidly into the dust. And it's good for us to remind ourselves that had that been us at that watering hole, our reactions probably would not have been that quick. But in reality, that we are still liable to the attacks of Satan, which can come from any time. So we need to maintain that dependence on God, that humility that uh, is so necessary, realizing we can't do it by ourselves. And I guess that really is our link to last week's passage as well. Because in verse 5, we, we read this, that God opposes the proud but shows favour, that's that word, Karen, grace, but shows favour to the humble. Now, do you want God's favour? Is, is that a you know, reasonable assumption that a good number of us here would, would say, yeah, I'd like God's favour? Okay. Three people nodded. That's good. There's more than that. It's okay. Uh, so, if we want God's favour, then that humility to say. First of all, I in myself am insufficient. I have a dependency on God to meet my needs, and that manifests itself in my behaviour towards each other believing that you are better than me, just as you should believe that I am better than you. In others, we're here to serve one another, right? If we exercise that humility, receiving God's grace, then we can see that that grace will continue to manifest itself. So just look at the passage and go back in your Bible to verse 5, where you see God's opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble or grace to the humble. Go to verse 10 where it says, and the God of all grace. And go to verse 12 where it talks about testifying that this is the true grace of God. If it's in verse 5, if it's in verse um, 10, if it's in verse 12, I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that that bit about resisting the devil, standing, uh, being alert and of sober mind, also needs God's grace applied. It's not something we can do by ourselves. And by the way, he's not the only one to write this. Peter's letter is one of the later letters written in the New Testament. And one of the earliest books in the New Testament is the letter of James. It was although it, well, you won't find it at the beginning of the New Testament, it, it would compete with the letter to the Galatians as being one of the first two letters written, the first two parts of the New Testament written. And in chapter 4 and verse 6, we, we read similar words, by the way, that God. Uh, shows grace to the humble in James chapter 4, verse 6. So we've got the beginning of the writings of the New Testament, way toward the end of the writings of the New Testament, we've got this consistent theme about us needing to be humble toward God and toward other people as well. So we're to be alert and of sober mind, we're to be aware of the devil, we're to resist him and stand firm in our faith. And then... Uh, we can tell you that Peter says in verse uh, 10 that suffering in one form or another is temporary. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. A lot of our culture is about avoiding pain or suffering at any cost we expect if we are suffering that the medics will deal with it. We expect that the um, things are going wrong that somebody will help us to to reduce our suffering in one way or another. But the Christian life is not like that. The Bible makes it clear that that God allows suffering for a purpose of purifying. And, And the reason is that when we are going through those difficult times it's those times that we are are leaning on God more than ever before and that's the best kind of faith to have that's what God wants us to have that purity of faith so suffering is is, is refining in our relationship with him so this God of all grace the God of unlimited power the God of unlimited fellowship with believers, the God of unlimited concern and care and mercy, God is going to make us more than what we ought to be. What he's doing is confirming in our minds through this suffering that he's working in our lives. So while we suffer, if it's under attack and maybe it's some other kind of suffering, God is saying, I'm with you. He's saying, I am your strength. He's saying, I will not fail you. You're confirmed in me. So suffering is not about defeat. Suffering is not sin. It's about our faith being purified. And so he ends up this letter with love and kisses. Not quite, but verse 13 He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen with you, sends um, you her greetings. Well, there's some speculation about what this might mean. I think the most likely meaning is this, that Babylon is is a sort of reference to Rome. Why? Well, well, Babylon in the Old Testament was a hostile environment in which the people of God found themselves as captives. Babylon was a a great city of the world empire to which the people of God were, were, were taken, And this letter was written to the people of God living under the empire of Rome. And we know that Peter spent quite a bit of time in Rome, so he may well have been writing from Rome. And so the the, 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 she who is in Babylon is probably a reference to the church uh, of, of, of Rome. And he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. It's probably died out a bit, hasn't it? in Western civilization. In fact, about 300 AD, kissing as a greeting seemed to be toned down uh, in the the church in the West. Um, But I do think that the ethos, whichever way you express it, is that there is to be a genuine greeting of peace from one believer to another peace to all of you who are in Christ the roar of the lion the flames of persecution that some of them were going through or about to go through cannot overthrow the shalom, the peace of Christ's salvation and so it's with that that Peter signs off his letter so let's go back to that statement of his purpose in in verse 12. And as we look at it, he says, I've written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He's talked about doing that in a number of different ways through his letter. As you've been listening to and taking part in this series, what is it that you're taking away with you as we leave Peter behind. I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk to one another, to talk among yourselves here, and then we'll get the, uh, the um, box mic and we'll throw it at people who want to speak and just say, what is it that I'm taking away from, from one Peter? So chat among yourselves about the last couple of months. Father, we thank you that despite it being... Um, Well, uh, nearly 2,000 years since Peter wrote these words, we recognize that he wrote them to a church going through real struggles at that time, but they're struggles that we, in one way or another, can identify with in our own lives, in our own culture. So we we thank you that the Word of God engages with us. We thank you that it is living and active, Thank you that your spirit has used it to to prod us and to poke us and to to identify in our lives those areas where there's either some serious pruning or at least some fine-tuning needed in order to align ourselves with the way you want us to be. Thank you for the encouragement and the hope uh, that is given in this letter. Thank you for the true grace of God And we ask you, Father, that you would find us like Silas, a faithful believer, that you would find us people who with your help, independence on you, stand firm against the temptations of the enemy and continue to um, overflow with the presence of Jesus through his Holy Spirit in our lives that we might witness to our faith and to the glorious good news that Jesus' love is sufficient. His death on the cross and his resurrection is enough to forgive uh, the most horrible and evil of person, to offer forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life, that eternal life that we've received. And we ask, Father, that we might make that known in our lives because of your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.